Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In March 2002, a state TV signal in China is hijacked by members of a banned spiritual group, Falun Gong. Their goal is to counter the government's narrative about their practice. Confronted with government denunciations and human rights violations against their spiritual practice, a group of Chinese activists execute a bold and perilous plan to hack into the state television. The film is called Eternal Spring, and it is a very interesting documentary, not only because of the content of the film, but also the way that it's told. And it's also could not be more relevant to the world we live in, in terms of human rights, authoritarianism, where we're going as a society, what responsibility do we have as citizens, not only of our own country, but of citizens of the world to fight against authoritarian regimes. The film again is called Eternal Spring, and we're joined today by the director, Jason Lofton. Jason, welcome back to Film School Radio. Uh, pleasure to be here, Mike. Thank you. Thank you uh, so much. As I mentioned to you before we get started, you were on a few years ago to talk about a documentary called Ask No Questions, also taking place in China. And I'm just curious, going back into revisit some of the same issues, some of the same concerns, did you go back into China to to tell this story? Or how did how did it work? Did you feel after Ask No Questions like it was safe to go back? So it's not safe to explore these subjects on the ground in China. Uh, it's impossible. I mean, the individuals who were involved in this TV signal heist story, the ones who are in China are either no longer with us or, you know, un in detention or just completely unreachable under some kind of house arrest um, from the authorities, etc. So going back is not only probably logistically impossible from a production standpoint, but also could subject those people to further danger and harm. Yes. So who we're dealing with and who appears on screen are only individuals who've managed to come out of China, uh, in many cases through rather harrowing episodes that that allowed them to get out. Um, and we're just fortunate that there is one surviving TV hijacker who has managed to get out of China after, you know, being tortured and, and, and such in prison for quite some time. He's now in Korea. And so uh, that that really allowed us this foray into the story and to give us all the details of the sort of heist elements. And it, it has really every aspect that you would expect in a typical heist story, except that what we're dealing with isn't a, you know, a large bank vault or something along these lines. It's it's an effort to to take over the airwave signal to to reach the hearts and minds of the Chinese people who had been, you know, sort of conditioned to believe that uh, a certain group of people was unworthy of human dignity and and was, you know, a scourge on society and needed to be eliminated. And so the, basically they're trying to counter this narrative and and sort of present who they are and and uh, and also to expose the persecution that they had been subjected to. So it's a it's a rather dramatic story in terms of a heist. It's something that has a lot more human consequence, which is why it you know, there's a sort of a protracted ending to it where we look at what the real world consequences of what happened to these people. You know, you touched on ask no questions and the connections between them. It's actually this film started first. It's it's got so much animation and all of this, and for a smaller studio, it's a rather ambitious project. So this is something we chipped away at for a number of years to sort of figure out how to tell this story and and to work. You know how it was going to be executed and uh, ask no questions sort of happened in the middle of that. And ask no questions is this 
investigative journalistic deep dive into the misinformation, into the propaganda, trying to get the answers and trying to find out how you really get to the truth in a society where that isn't actually a criteria of information that's circulated. Like, how do you know when there is no sort of objective external ability to look at things? So that's one angle. Uh, and it deserved being told. I think it's a it's an important story from the perspective of understanding Western media operations in China, uh, like what information we can rely on in China, the human cost of misinformation and all that. It felt like a different story from this one. This story is really focused on the individuals on the ground in China who are the victims of this misinformation and who are suffering the human costs of it. But despite all of that, and despite the risks that they continually face, have hatched some really bold and courageous sort of countermeasures. You know, a lot of ingenuity, I would say, and a, and a lot of bravery as well at the same time. And this story to me just really hit me as like, you know, a TV heist story and uh, a bunch, sort of an eclectic band of underdogs uh, who pulled this off. And, and for us, it also had this added layer because we're looking at the story through the lens of an artist uh, who was affected by it. So you know, it's a group of Falun Gong practitioners in Northeast China in a city called Changchun. Um, they're being persecuted. Um, they're being slandered in the state media. They hatch a plan to take over the state TV airwaves because they find the flyers and pamphlets and DVDs are not enough. They can't reach people and they're getting arrested and tortured and stuff. So they, they hatch a plan to go big and take over the state TV airwaves. And in the aftermath, the authorities, this is just unprecedented. No one has, you know, interrupted the monopoly that the Chinese Communist Party has on information and the airwaves and such. And so the hammer comes down very heavily and thousands of people are arrested, far more than they were involved, obviously, in the TV hijacking plot. And so this is where this artist comes in. He's one of these people who's affected. He's detained briefly. He's tortured. He has to flee, leaves behind his comic book studio, et cetera. And, and he's trying to understand this event that impacted his life because he's part of the community. So he's sympathetic to efforts to counter the government narrative. But he also suffered. And he also feels like, you know, we were breaking the law and doing this is like, he has these mixed feelings. And so he wants to understand it. He wants to explore it. And the way that he processes it is through his art. And so we follow him as he puts pen to paper and draws these things, meets other survivors, and then meets the lone surviving TV hijacker who's gotten out of China and puts this whole heist story together, but also uh, allows him to understand this event that it, it impacted, had impacted his life. And gain some closure and understanding and hopefully some healing uh, through the artistic and creative process. So that part plays out in live action on screen, shot with a camera. And then the the drawings that he creates to recreate this event are brought to life in animation. And it's a blending of these two styles that, that creates the film. It's a beautiful look to it, the beautiful animation and a very talented artist. And for people who are up to watching documentary films on a regular basis, it will remind you a bit of Flea that came out last mm -hmm. year and that sort of style of t telling storytelling. There have been others. So many, so many things that you talked about. And I guess mm -hmm. we should begin at sort of the the origin story for for this, mm -hmm. which is the persecution of Falun Gong and what it is to start with for people who don't know. Mm -hmm. I think most people have heard of it, but may not be familiar. Is it a religion? Is it a practice? What is it? So let's talk about that. What is full Falun? Sure. Yeah, a little context on this. That's where sort of my interest in the subject matter is. And I touch on that a little bit and ask no questions. Sort of mm -hmm. my foray into this subject matter is I was in high school and I had an interest in Eastern philosophy and meditation, and I had explored different Eastern practices, and I encountered Falun Gong in 1998. 
So this is before there was a crackdown in China and before it was banned. And so from my perspective at that point, it's, you know, involves these five sets of slow moving exercises. Uh, you know, I felt it positive, uh, calming, this kind of stuff, uh, you know, it's good for, I felt it was beneficial to health, you know, all those things I sort of encountered, I felt, felt good about the practice. And then it has this sort of philosophical or spiritual moral component. The tenets of the practice are centered around truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. So these are the, the core ideas that underpin the, the philosophy and the teachings. And the idea is that as you elevate your moral character in line with these principles, you do these exercises and the energy comes from the, the, the upgrade of your character, right? They call it xingxing or like moral quality. So you're, you're upgrading your moral quality in your day-to-day life and conflicts you have, et cetera. You're trying to adhere to these principles, uh, you know, abandon attachments. And then you do these exercises and the energy that you build through the upgrade of your character is, is sort of transferred as well to the benefits of your physical body. The idea that the mind and the body go together, right? So this is the idea. Um, that's a concept to me. It seemed like something very positive, uh, kind of a Buddhist tradition in terms of its sort of approach and all of this. But then it's, you know, 1999, a year after my introduction to Falun Gong, it's banned. And it's, you know, you're hearing this narrative that it's evil and dangerous and we need to get rid of this thing. And I'm just comparing what I've witnessed, uh, you know, with my interactions with Falun Gong, the practice with the community of mostly Chinese expats who I find practicing it in my city in Toronto. And I'm comparing this with the Chinese state narrative. And I'm like, this just doesn't reconcile at all. This just doesn't add up. And so for me, that planted this seed of interest and in wanting to understand more uh, what's going on in China. I was at high school as a teenager. I knew very little about the Chinese political situation. Uh, so I wanted to understand more about how this had come about, how the, you know, the crackdown had come about, what the government's concerns were. I think that sparked an interest as well in these kinds of subjects. So when it comes to stories like Dashong's or the stories that happened in Ask No Questions, when I come across these things... Um, I just had a passion to tell them because I had felt the kind of injustice that these people were experiencing. I had, I had one version of what, who they were and what they were about and what the practice was about from my own experience. And then I had a very different one that I was hearing from the, from the state media narrative. And this, this gave me this sense of indignation or something, something was missing. Something wasn't right. At the same time, it also, um, I could see that this narrative was underpinning all of the human rights abuses they were facing. It was the justification for arresting these people and torturing them and all of this, right? And so I understood the real world consequences, the harm of that narrative. And so when I hear stories like Dashong's, it just resonates with me, you know, these, these, this sort of bold effort. But also at the same time, I mean, to give a little bit more background, it it sparked my interest in learning more about what had happened in China. So for the benefit of your audience, um, you know, the... these practices that we see with these slow moving exercises, you know, nowadays we kind of group them into sometimes described as Qigong, right. And these kind of like, it looks like Chinese yoga, slow moving exercises. They were traditionally historically in China, they were uh, most often associated with some type of inner self-refinement or cultivation or something like this. And so they had a kind of spiritual or even religious kind of, uh, you know, uh, vibe to them, right? They, they had that goal in mind was like, not just physical exercises, but also some kind of spiritual ascension or something along these lines. When the communists came to power in 1949, I mean, communism itself is an officially atheist ideology. And, and typically in most countries where it takes root, there's also this direct opposition to religion and faith and spirituality. But it was especially the case in China because the Marxist thinking was uh, an import from the West. And so there was this tension with anything also that was rooted in traditional Asian or traditional Chinese thought, right? 
So um, I think, you know, what they did in the early stages when they took over was, you know, they destroyed the temples, the monks were forced to marry, this kind of thing. There was this conflict with religion. What happened later was that in the aftermath of one of the various political campaigns uh, in China in the 19, 1976, the Cultural Revolution ended, the country was in quite a shambles. You know, there had been persecutions of so many different people. The economy was awful. You know, the, uh, the healthcare system was a mess. Uh, and they kind of tolerated or even quietly encouraged the resurgence of these practices. And this is where the Qigong name came in. Qi and Gong basically are just two words that both mean energy. And it was just, it was these energy practices. And that seemed benign enough because yes, these are traditional Chinese things. Okay, this is part of Chinese culture. Let's celebrate it. But at the same time, we're not talking about the religious names that these things used to have. We're not like, you know, making that kind of connection to it anymore. So they were tolerated, even encouraged, and there was actually some administration that oversaw them. And then what happened in 1992 was Falun Gong was introduced, and it contained this, it didn't have the structures of a formal religion, it didn't have, uh, you know, temples or, or you know, worship or, um, you know, wasn't accepting donations, didn't have membership lists, these kinds of things. But it had the spiritual and philosophical components of, you know, of a religious practice that had been kind of absent from a lot of the other Qigong. And so it really connected with people who had been separated, I think, from this kind of uh, thing for a long time. And a lot of people really resonated with it and were passionate about it. And so what happened was Falun Gong grew from 1992 until 1999 to be, you know, estimates of tens of millions, potentially even 100 million people by some estimates were practicing it. And this is a number that's larger than Communist Party membership. And it had happened so quickly. And it was rooted around uh, a set of beliefs, even if they were positive by, by the, you know, by the uh, description of the, the people who were participating in it, it was at the same time, uh, something that wasn't controlled by the Communist Party. And so this is what creates this kind of tension. And so Falun Gong goes from being something that was even, you know, celebrated in certain regards, awarded, mentioned positively in state media reports. I know people who learned Falun Gong from a Chinese consulate overseas. It was, you know, something that was introduced positively. Immediately the, the switch flips and this is evil and dangerous and we need to get rid of this thing. And so the people who had connected with it and found something that had been missing for them in Falun Gong didn't want to give that up. And this is where this struggle begins, which is where, you know, the people who really wanted to adhere to this practice, they felt they had benefited from it. They didn't want to you know, go along with the party's narrative and say, this is so bad. They're like, no, I benefited from it. That wouldn't, you know, they wanted to continue. And so the party would begin to round up these people, imprison them, put them into labor camps, detention centers, numerous reports of torture, then some verified death cases coming out of Chinese custody. So this becomes escalated to a high level. And then to support this really heavy handed approach, immediately there's this sort of constant onslaught in the state media, this propaganda, this narrative, that these people are evil and dangerous. And one claim after another, the Falun Gong is responsible for every bad thing that you could imagine. And these people are going to be murderous and dangerous. You better stay away from them. And so at first, I think most people were kind of shrugging their shoulders because they had seen people just trying to practice their exercises. It seemed benign, but eventually this propaganda, and that's what we explore and ask no questions, really kind of eroded the public sympathy for Falun Gong. And the people in Chongqin City, which is what we get into in, in uh, Eternal Spring, these people recognized that handing out flyers and leaflets and DVDs and such was not going to be enough. When if people already had these ideas in their minds, because everything they see and read and hear says that we're bad and dangerous and we, you know, uh, we're harmful then they won't even take the opportunity to read the flyer we give them. They're going to turn us in and tell the cops, hey, hey, get a, there's a Falun Gong guy here bothering me, like take him away. 
So they recognized that they had to think bigger. They had been in and out of labor camps and stuff. And they said, we have to go after the, the big goal here, basically. And so they hatch a plan to climb the television poles and uh, intercept, you know, cut the cable and intercept the signal with their own homemade video uh, in, a, in a home video player, basically. And, and uh, you know, try and reach the whole city in prime time. That's the, that's the, the core, at, you know, where this all comes from. One other thing about the practice of Falun Gong is that it's done, we often see in the, in the film, and I know this to be true, in public. And mm-hmm. over time, these gatherings of people practicing would become larger and larger. So it wasn't just that a lot of people were yes. purportedly practicing. They were doing in public spaces, which yeah, they were visible. It made what the Chinese government ended up doing in some ways I say easier because they they people could they'd seen people doing it, and if mm-hmm. they could turn that you know the messaging around in terms of the perception of them into something completely different, I could see where I, it's sort of a, an interesting dynamic, right? Where all right. of a sudden, well, yeah, everyone knew someone who practiced. No one felt they had to be secretive about it before the crackdown. Right. So then right. everybody knew somebody and right. created a lot of tensions. You know, in a lot of cases, like we we don't get into it in the film, but the tension we get into it just a little bit. Uh, we don't talk about the motivations behind it, but the tension between Dashong and his father, which he right. he talked about in his interview. It, it didn't come from a place of his father having like it changed his attitude towards his son or genuinely having been concerned about what influence Falun Gong would have on him. It was because he was afraid of his son experiencing the political persecution that he had experienced, you know? So then he burns his books in an effort to try and save him from that consequence, from that end result. Right. So it, it had this kind of pressure on family members as well. And the party used that intentionally because they know just saying, no, you can't do it. Uh, often wasn't enough. So they would use every lever at their disposal to get people to give up their practice. We're speaking with Jason Lofton. He is the director of a documentary film called Eternal Spring, and it is out on, I want to say the 28th. It's coming out here. And uh, it should be it should be in theaters already now. So oh. we are we are on uh, 76 screens with AMC cinemas across the U.S. and most markets. And we're still holding in uh, the film form where we had an exclusive uh, premiere or like theatrical opening last week. So okay. 77 screens in total across the US and your audience can find it all on eternalspringfilm.com. Going back to the heist, if, what you call it, the heist, the, the mm-hmm. uh, essentially mm-hmm. intercepting of the signal and then uh, turning it into their video, their own video for a little while. How did that land? In other words, it broadcast to a big, bigger city in China Mm-hmm. Was there was there a, any sort of public reaction that there that people were they talking about it other than the authorities' yeah. reaction to what they had done? Yes. Do we have any sense of of that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. So, I mean, we include bits of that in there, and this was kind of intentional too about how much to show because um, so some of the pieces we have are you know, Mr. Zhang, who who heads to the, he gets a text or like a page at that time, they were using pagers. And so he goes to use the public phone at the convenience store and he sees the Falun Gong programming on TV. And, you know, he's been a Falun Gong practitioner. All he's, all he's heard is the slander and, and denouncements of the state media all the time. And he, I guess he recognizes why someone was paging him. Hey, hey, look what's going on. <laughs> um, but it's just this feeling of everyone being shocked. And then, you know, one, another uh, little way talks about how his boss called him and said, Hey, this, I completely like, I changed my perspective. There's a bit of a story with little way and his boss that we don't get into in the film. It was just a necessary cut to keep things 
sort of focused, but, you know, he had this tension within his workplace. His boss was suspicious of him because of all the propaganda about Falun Gong. And so we have these examples. Dashong received, you know, calls from other people who worked in his comic book studio. They had thought that the persecution of Falun Gong was over and that the government had changed his attitude, its attitude. Some people thought that there had been a coup and the leadership had changed and the new leader didn't want to persecute Falun Gong, like all kinds of things. People were in some places kind of coming out in the streets and congratulating the people they knew who were practitioners. Hey, you made it. You know, it's all it's all good. So people had all these different things. We didn't show uh, we didn't go too far with it. We showed pieces of it. But that was intentional because in a typical heist story, that's the part where you get into the vault and you get the prize, you know, and hey, everything's great. But this is real life. And the reality is a lot of people died after this. And so there is another component to the film that kind of carries on from there, which is also sad, but there's something really powerful in it, I think, as well, at least in the story really connected with me that we wanted to share. And so we didn't go too far with the sort of, hey, here's a success. There is definitely a success. You know, they reached people. And this is what I tried to depict artistically as well. There's after the TV heist, there's a tree that blooms as sort of one flower. It's actually a plum blossom. In Chinese, they call it meihua. And it's used in uh, poetry frequently in China. Uh, the reason is that flower actually blooms when it's still winter. Uh, it still blooms sometimes when there's snow out. And so the symbology of the flower is that even in the midst of really cold and harsh conditions, or when things are very dark and difficult, there's some kind of seed of hope, something something blooming, something suggesting a better time ahead, right? And so I felt that really captured the spirit of these individuals because you look at this story, you look at it different ways, what's the right way to tell it? It didn't feel right to make it celebratory as though they had succeeded and everything was great. It also didn't feel right to make it a real downer in the sense of like, hey, they tried all this, but they died and they lost. And so it was never worth it. The lesson is don't don't upset the Communist Party. That's the lesson the Communist Party wants people to, to take. But that's not the message I was getting from the survivors. And even the survivors who knew those who didn't survive, it felt like right to the last breath, they still believed very much in what they had done, despite the consequences. And it took me some time to, to understand that hope. Like, where does that come from? What gives them that hope? And I, and I understood it was in my mind because they weren't thinking primarily about themselves you know they looked at it this and they understood they were suffering as a result of this but they also knew that hundreds of thousands of people perhaps more witnessed this broadcast and could never look at the state media propaganda in the same way and because of that it doesn't mean that the next day they're all going to rise up and oppose the communist party and, and all of this but they might be less likely to turn in their neighbors and they might be less likely to some way unwittingly participate in this persecution. And I think the Falun Gong adherents really have seen the Chinese people uh, as victims of this persecution too, because it's not like they woke up with the malice to, you know, to hate their countrymen and all this. They've been fed a narrative of lies and hate and, and they've been under pressure and incentives to kind of, you know, uh, violate the rights of their fellow countrymen. It didn't come from a, a place of ill will to begin with. And so I think they see them as victims of this as well. And so reaching them and allowing them to hear their voice was worthwhile for them. And that's where I see this, this one plum blossom flower. It's not a whole bunch of them. It's just one after they pull off this heist. It's a seed of hope. They see something better in the future. And I see it too, because I see it's inspired more people to stand up. You know, immediately after this, there were TV hijacking efforts in other cities, some of which were successful to different extents. Nowadays, we see a kind of reincarnation of this spirit in the sort of technological battle that's happening with people overseas using their 
technological uh, abilities to counteract the censorship that happens in China and break through the firewall. And so yeah. you see this kind of spirit carrying on. And now I see it today, even with the, you know, the, the mainstream Chinese people who, who don't practice Falun Gong, like we've been sharing this film. And there was a, a girl that, that we did, a, that was at a Q&A we did at an arts university in Canada uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, she had just come back from China to start the new term. And she's from Changchun, the city where this takes place. And she was deeply touched by the film. She was emotional, like shaking when she was asking a question. And, and her question to Dashong, because she just came back and, you know, we've all heard in the news about the extraordinarily draconian lockdown measures in China that, you know, in many cases, quite extreme, not just a matter of public health, but just a complete disregard for the mental well-being of their citizenry. And, the, and people have really felt the repressive hand of the authorities, even if they're not part of one of these groups. In the past, it used to be that people would just say, well, you know, the government hates Falun Gong. I don't know what Falun Gong did. They must have done something like, let's just stay out of Falun Gong and you'll be okay. You can go about your life. But I think a lot of Chinese people now feel that it's not just Falun Gong and it's not just the Uyghurs and it's not just the Tibetans and it's not just Hong Kong. This is an issue of the regime and it's disregard for its own people. And so I could see in her this, she was asking, you know, where do I get the strength? Where do I get this courage? And so now I see other people looking at their story and understanding that it's like, you know, it's, this doesn't get better if we don't, if we don't say no, right. If we don't do something, it requires a lot of courage. And it's very difficult, but at a certain level, we have to make sure we're not going along with it. And so seeing just mainstream Chinese people who are not part of Falun Gong taking inspiration from it, uh, you know, to me, it's speaking to that kind of universal element that's there, right? And and that to me is that seed of hope that they've planted that's being carried forward. And that's what I tried to reflect with the, you know, with the symbology. In addition to all of the things you said, the presentation of the film, the use of animation gives you sort of a positive energy, whether even if when they're depicting, you know, some very dire and terrible circumstances, uh, it, it, the film does have, it resonates with that that level of hope. And uh, it's great to see the film has won a number of awards. It's been, it's played all over the world and congratulations for the reach of the film in terms of you've been able to get it out. And now it's currently in theaters here in the United States and you can find out where it's playing near you or, or host a screening possibly, mm -hmm. or just also, yeah, we're also doing public screening separately from the theatrical run. And right. all of that is at the website. Yeah. Eternalspringfilm.com. You can find out more about it. And in, just in closing, I, I want to just on a personal level say to you, Jason, often in terms of your work and your putting yourself at risk because the Chinese government is exceedingly powerful. But I, I'm of the opinion we should never be too surprised at what can happen in China, and we don't know the future, but I certainly think that there is a lot of pressure, internal and external, for China to to uh, be a better country, and that will continue. It's not that's not going to go away. And to the extent that you are a part of hoping and uh, and by your actions, not just by your your desire, but by your actions, hopefully pushing it a little bit, a little bit towards that, and I at risk and i'm sure at personal risk to yourself so um my my uh, congratulations and my sincere appreciation for what you do so thank you mike i really enjoy speaking with you and and i appreciate the opportunity to connect with your audience as well around this film i hope people enjoy it thank you we've been talking with jason lofton the film is called eternal spring thank you so much
You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.